0: Good morning, family. Hope everyone's having a great Sunday morning so far. So last week we started a new series. We're going through the Ten Commandments. And we, so we looked at why we're studying the Ten Commandments. And we looked at the first commandment to have no other God before uh, God, the God of the Bible, Yahweh. And so we looked at how, how foundational that is for our understanding for who God is. And so today we're going to dive into the second commandment. Uh, that Ted kind of talked about that's dealing more with how we worship God and what is appropriate in how we worship God. And so let's go to him in prayer before we dig in. Dear Father, thank you so much for this time that we can come and we can sit under your word, that we can see who you are uh, displayed for us, that we can see your will for us articulated through these commandments, and that we can understand how Christ has fulfilled those and how, as we stand in Christ, we stand in his righteousness and that uh, we look to him for our hope. But these, these commandments are so good and they guide us in how we should worship you and, and look towards you and serve you. And so, Lord, I just pray for this time that we can do, we can approach your word with eyes open, with hearts illuminated by your spirit, that we can understand what you would have us take from it, that we can be taught what we need to be taught, and that we can approach it with uh, openness and willingness to obey and serve you in all these things. Lord, we love you and we seek you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So a picture is worth a thousand words. Seeing is believing. You have to see it to believe it. Show, don't tell. You've heard these sayings before. Even Napoleon said, a good sketch is better than a long speech. This idea that what we see is better than what we hear or what we, we see is better than what someone can describe. There's power in picture, isn't there? Human beings are very visual beings. We we visualize concepts. We we think about things in in really kind of ways that are, are visual. That we can't help but do it. If I say don't think about a pink elephant, chances are right now you're visualizing a pink elephant. Because we are very visual we, we, we process things through our sight. You can read a news story about some tragic event, and all too often it can seem pretty far and removed from us. It's out there. But if you accompany that news story with one picture that encompasses what's going on, all of a sudden it becomes real. We know there's power in pictures. Power in images. I think that's one of the reasons we love TV and movies so much is that they have the power to bring to life the things that we've only reimagined before and now they're brought to life before us so we can see them and we don't have to imagine them anymore. But there's power in pictures. There's power in the image. So why, knowing there's power in image, does God and his second commandment for his people say don't make any images of me why does he say that well let's first look at that second commandment that he's given us in exodus chapter 20 verses 4 through 6 so you can turn there if you have your bibles so don't worry it's going to be on the screen and last week we read the whole passage of uh, Exodus 20, where we find the whole Ten Commandments, we're just going to look at uh, verses 4 through 6 that give us the, the second commandment. It says, "...you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God." Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, by showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my command commandments. It's a short little passage about this commandment not to make images. And so, what should we glean from this? What should we take, or how could we summarize this commandment? And I'd offer this to you guys: God reveals, idols conceal. This idea that God actually reveals who he is through his word. He reveals who he is through his prophets. He reveals who he is to his people. But we kind of conceal him when we start making images or we want to put something on top of God or we want to filter God through something else. We conceal who he truly is. That's what idols do. That's what our images do. They start concealing and twisting and warping who God truly is. And so God reveals, idols conceal. So let's take a look look at that commandment itself and really see what it's saying. And when we break down the commandment, we see there's actually two prohibitions going on. It says, don't make for yourself an image of God and don't worship basically any image that we have made. These two commandments are talking about there should not be any idolatry going on, worshiping something else besides God, and there should be actually God cares about how we worship him. And we don't make image in the worship of him. So let's talk about that first or really the second prohibition that we shouldn't worship any images that we made. We shouldn't practice what's called idolatry in the Bible. It seems almost redundant if we have just read the first commandment that says you should not worship any other gods but me. Now we come and says, hey, don't worship any other gods that you've made. And it almost seems redundant, and it almost seems, why is, why is God spending the time to be so explicit in this? And I think he's done doing this because he knows the danger that comes from worshiping something else besides him. He knows the danger that comes from making an image that we see, uh, that we worship. He, he sees that so dangerous, so he wants to be. He needs to be explicit with us because sometimes we just don't get what he's put, giving to us, and so he's being explicit in this, and he, he's doing that because idol worship, worshiping anything but God, is dangerous. It's destructive, and we actually see in the text why it is. When the first aspect of what makes it so dangerous is that it's actually progressive. This text says, "Do not make." And then it says, do not bow down and do not serve. It's showing this progressive nature that idol worship brings, that first you make it, then you're going to be bowing down to it, and next thing you know, you're going to be serving it. You're going to be progressively brought into worshiping something that is not God. It's progressive in its nature. Throughout the Bible, we see this progressive nature that actually, not only are we brought into, we start bowing down, we start worshiping and serving it, but now it's going to start changing us to be like what we've made. This is what Psalm says in Psalm 115 verses 4 through 8 says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. They do not make a sound in the throat. Those who make them become like them. Those, so do all who trust in them. That the progressive danger, destructive nature of idol worship is that we first make something and then we start bowing down to it and serving it and we start becoming like it. But it's not just that it's progressive that makes it dangerous, it's the fact that it's also contagious. Contagious. That idol worship is contagious, and we see that when it's talking about how God will visit the iniquity of this sin upon the children to the fourth and the, or the third and the fourth generations, and we hear this, or read this, and we go, well, that seems pretty unfair. Is God saying that he's going to be punishing kids for what their fathers did? And I don't believe that's what it's saying. Actually, it's it's said elsewhere in in the Bible how God forgives people if they repent and and that we're not condemned just because of what our fathers did. But what this is saying is that because your fathers led you in this way, chances are you're going to follow in that exact same sin. And God's iniquity, he's going to punish that iniquity, that same sin, because you're following in the foot steps of your forefathers. You're doing what they did. The children share in their father's punishment because they're sharing in their father's sin. And that's actually such a danger of idol worship is that it traps people away from the true God. It keeps them away from seeing who God truly is and they need to be freed from that which is what the gospel does when Jesus shows us who God truly is as he comes and saves us. idol worship is so dangerous because it's progressive, it's contagious. And when you think about it, it's absurd. I love the Bible because it doesn't hold any punches, if you will. And so if you read Isaiah 44, verses 9 through 20, which we're not, it highlights just how absurd idol worship is. Because in Isaiah, he talks about, hey, the guy, he makes some some cutting tools and he gets tired because he's human, but then he gets up and he makes these cutting tools and then the woodcutter cuts down a tree and he uses half the tree to heat his home and cook his food over, but then he fashions the other half into his God, which he then bows down and worships. How absurd is that? That we think we can carve and fashion something that deserves to be worshipped. That we can think we can make uh, an image that actually is worthy of our worship. And so it's just showing how absurd pursuing worship of idols is. That this commandment actually makes it pretty clear. Worshiping idols is dangerous and should be avoided. But it's more than just saying that. Because again, that other part of the prohibition is that we should not make images of our God for worship as well. And so what it's doing is actually getting to the heart of worship, which I think is more, probably more relevant to us. Because when we think of idol worship, if you're like me, you think of you know, that big statue of a god out over in India, or the Buddhas that are set up, or the Hindu gods that people you know, offer sacrifices to or offerings to. And we think of that when we start thinking about idol worship. But this is saying there's actually a more important aspect probably more relevant i should say aspect to us and that is that's is talking about how we worship the god we do know i love how the uh, author and pastor kevin the young says if the first commandment is against worshiping the wrong god the second commandment is against worshiping god in the wrong way and that's why there's that prohibition don't make an image of God, of anything, of the heavens above or in the skies or on earth or under the earth, don't make images of God to worship God because that is not how God wants us to be worshipped. One of the most insidious forms of idol worship are the images we craft, whether in our minds or even physically, of who God is. When we're thinking of the God of the Bible and we start forming an image of our own making, that's one of the most insidious forms of idol worship. And we even see it in the Bible. For it didn't take that long for the Israelites to fall into that same trap. If you remember, after Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments, there's other law giving, and then he's going up and he's talking with God again. And then in Exodus chapter 32, people are kind of going, where is Moses? What are we supposed to be doing? And what does Aaron, his brother, do? He collects gold from the people and he crafts a golden calf and he sets it up. It's maybe one of the most famous instances of idol worship in the Bible. But he wasn't saying, hey, this is the God of the people around us or this is the God of the Egyptians. No, if you read the account, what did he say? He says, It says, and then he received gold from their hands and fashioned with it a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They fashioned a calf and they basically said, this is God, the God who brought us out of Egypt. This is Yahweh, the God that we know through the Bible. He's saying, this is who he is. And so they put an image upon God, as we know, is, that is actually pro- prohibited from this commandment, saying you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do this because that's not God. God's not a golden calf. And that's not how God wants to be worshipped or has commanded us to come before him. Why? Because God reveals, but idols conceal. So let's dive a little deeper in what that actually means, and why is this commandment given for us? Well, God cares how we worship him. Because what do images do? They put a filter in our minds between who God is and how we start thinking about him. And God can't be contained. That's what images try to do. They try to contain God and thus process who He is. When Aaron's making a golden calf and sets it up and says, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt, what's he doing? He's saying, we're containing God into this calf. And people are like, yeah, that makes sense. Because a golden calf is containable and we can understand it. We can grasp it. We see it. And we can process who it is. And it makes sense to us. But God says, you cannot contain me. I'm bigger than any image that you could possibly imagine. I'm bigger than any image that you possibly could fashion. You cannot contain who I am. And so when you try to contain who I am through any image, whether it's in your mind or whether you set it up somewhere, you're actually limiting God and we're putting our expectations and what we want God to be on God and and filtering everything through that. But we can't do that because that limits how we see God. And God is distinct from his creation. We can't contain him by what he's made. He's bigger. He's better. He's so much more vast than what we could have even imagined. So we don't do images of God. Why? Because it tries to contain him. We try to contain God because we want to control him. We can be honest. A tame, controlled God is so much more comfortable than the ruler of the universe who made everything in, the, in calls, everything his, Because we can control him. We can keep him in a nice corner. We can say, I'm only going to come for a little bit here and there, and I want to do what things that make me feel comfortable. We get a handle on him. We can kind and of grasp him. And we we'll say, oh, this makes sense. But any God that we could, can grasp and understand exhaustively is not a God worthy of worship because it's lower than who we are. We want to bring God down to our level, if we're honest, maybe a little lower, so we get to decide how we approach Him and how we worship Him and how we honor Him. And that's what idols are doing, is they're helping us trying to control who God is. We're putting maybe other ideas or concepts from the world around us onto that God as we're making this image of who God is. I love how Jen Wilkins, who's a, a Bible teacher and author, says anytime we take the attributes of the false gods, the worlds around us worships, and apply them to God, we make him more palatable and less threatening, more accommodating and less thunderous. We produce a graven image. We whittle down his transcendence. We paint over his sovereignty. We chisel away his omnipotence until he is a pet-like version. That when we are setting up an image of who God is, we seek to control him and make him less than God. Less than who he truly is. Less than how he has revealed himself to us. Because that's the amazing thing. God has revealed himself to us. He's made himself known so that we can know him and respond to what he's done for us and love him but he reveals himself as he chooses to reveal himself. And all idols do, all these images we, we have do, is start twisting and filtering how we see God through a lens of our own making and conceal who God truly is. Because God reveals, but idols conceal. And God forbids this happening because it says in that commandment, our God is a jealous God. He's a jealous God who does not want us to worship things not him and th- does not want us to worship him falsely as well. We read that commandment and if we're honest kind of rubs us the wrong way. Because we read that and say, wow, well, who is God to say he's jealous? And we see del- jealousy through this negative lens because as we experience jealousy, we're demanding or, or wanting or desiring things that we have no claim to. We think we should get this devotion that we don't have a claim to or this, this uh, affection from someone we really don't have a claim to. And, and so we see it in that negative light. But here comes God and says, I am a jealous God. Why can I be a jealous God? Because I actually deserve devotion. I'm the only one worthy of worship. It's actually right and good for you to look at me and know me. And we should read that. And actually it's not so much about what he desires for himself because he doesn't need us. But it's actually what he desires for us. He's a jealous God and that's a good thing for us. Because he is jealous for our affection and our, our devotion and our, 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 our following him. Why? Because that is how we've been made by him. It is right and good that we do so. And we actually can only find fulfillment when we're doing so. We can only find true meaning, true lasting purpose in this life when we do so. When we find our completion and satisfaction in Him. And so it's good when we wander astray and do our own thing. It ends in heartbreak and angst and trouble and hurt and yearning. So he's jealous for us to know the truth of who he is and to follow him and not believe a lie of our own making. God reveals, idols conceal. It's interesting when you start thinking about the power of images, how we follow them or how we think through them, that God comes to his people and he doesn't say, look at this particular image or see me as this or that, but he actually comes to his people and say, we believe or have faith through hearing his word. Actually, belief and faith is actually set up almost in opposition to what you see in this world. That The, the writer of Hebrews, at the beginning of Hebrews uh, chapter 11, kind of gives the definition of what faith is. And it says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. That faith is actually opposed to what we might, might see with our own eyes. That it's not so much about seeing is believing, but having faith is believing, and you start seeing God through our faith. Even Jesus, when he shows up after the resurrection with Thomas, and he shows himself to Thomas because he doubted that Jesus actually rose, what he says is, blessed are those who have not seen and yet still believe. This is an interesting thought that God comes and he does present, we see images of God presented to people but it's never said that he look back or see me as these things but he says know me through my word and how I reveal myself to you and that's how we have faith. And Paul even says in Romans chapter 10 verse 17 that faith comes by hearing. That God somehow has chosen to reveal himself through those spoken and written Word. That's how we know God. I believe he does this because there's no image that we can conceive of or we can process that can show us who God truly is. But he can reveal enough of himself through his word and through, 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 through how he reveals himself that we can grasp who he is and follow him and see who he is. God reveals idols conceal an amazing thing is that if you want an image of God we have to look no further than Jesus himself Because that's what he's given for us. It says that again and again throughout the Bible that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That Jesus himself says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And so when we know Jesus, when we see Jesus through his word, we actually know who God is. We can actually see God as we see Jesus. But the interesting thing about that is that Jesus is never physically described in the Bible. Just think about that for a second. I'm an average reader. I love fantasy and sci-fi books. Nerdler, I know. But the hero is always described. Who is that tall, dark, handsome guy sitting in the corner? Always oh, going to be the hero of the story. He's described. We get a picture of who he is, and they probably describe him multiple times. But when we come to the, the Bible, he's never described. Jesus is never given a description of who he is. In fact, the closest thing we get is in Isaiah looking forward to who he is, and they say his appearance is not going to be anything that draws people to him. Actually, he's going to be marred talking about the cross and what happens to him. And so it's interesting that when we see Jesus, we can see God, but it's not about physically seeing Jesus. And that's why we now have hope, because we won't physically see Jesus here. We have hope because when it says see Jesus and see God, it's talking about see what Jesus is, who he is, what he's done for us, how he loves us, his acts of kindness and his acts of love and how he accomplished salvation on the cross. Look to those things and you see God's heart for us. You see who God is. So it's not so much of figuring out how Jesus looked, but it's figuring out what Jesus did and who he is that we start to see who God is. <clears throat> and we see God revealed through Jesus, and we see Jesus revealed through his word. God reveals. Idols conceal. So how do we keep these commandment, this commandment? How, when we're processing through, we're not supposed to do this. How do we keep this? Because the chances are, you're probably thinking, well, I don't have a household idol set up in my house. I'm probably doing pretty good. But it goes it goes deeper than that, because the first way we keep this commandment is that we guard our minds. That this commandment is talking about what we think about when we think about God. What image do we put upon the God of the Bible? We guard our minds, and so we we're not doing that. We're not filtering through God through this truth that or that we've made this, this image that we have made. A. W. Tozer, who was who's an author, a Christian author and He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I love that quote because it's so true. If you view God as a harsh taskmaster who's never happy, chances are you start being harsh with people and become very legalistic and say you do and you do not. If you view God as that good, kind, fatherly grandfather The old man in the sky, that's all just love and cherry rainbows. You probably start viewing life as very permissive. It doesn't matter how we live and there's no accountability. If you view God in these certain ways, it determines how you act. If you view God as all brimstone and fire, chances are you don't act with grace towards people. If you view God as being lackadaisical about how people live for him, chances are you don't ask brothers and sisters to live faithfully in the truth how we view god determines how we process our faith how we process our life how we live day by day it's the most important thing about us and that's why we guard our minds when it comes to who god is and we guard our minds and we when it comes to pictures of god or how we think of god we guard our minds and we keep false images or things we've made up out and this also comes when we start to look towards Jesus. As we see Jesus as God and we, we're processing how we should view Him, we guard our minds when it comes to that. Because we see that everywhere. We see those images that are almost traditional now, whether it's back in the Renaissance when Michelangelo and, and Da Vinci are painting images of Jesus, or even now when you can see, go into homes and you see pictures of a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus. And that's, chances are, that's not what he looked like. Or you can go into some other homes and you see a picture of Jesus that is of a different color or that's reflecting the occupants of that home. Whether it be Asian or more African, and chances are maybe that's not Jesus, what Jesus looked like. And that we all have this tendency to take Jesus and want to make an image of the guy who made us in his image, but now we're going to remake him in our own image for whatever purposes we want. And again, we have to be guard our minds that that is not who Jesus is. Now, when it comes to any depiction of who Jesus is, we have to guard our minds about is that truly who Jesus is? Because images are powerful. When I was in college, the the Passion of the Christ came out. And if you don't know that, it's Mel Gibson, he produced this huge thing and. and You know, it has its merits, but obviously to do a whole story about Jesus and his crucifixion and his resurrection, you have to have an actor play Jesus. And this actor, Jim uh, Gazil, I think his name is, he played Jesus, right? And now I can't see that guy in anything else but without having to say, that's Jesus. And that's kind of humorous, and that's kind of funny, but I have to stop and ask myself when I say jokingly, that's Jesus, Do I now, when I say, well, what does Jesus look like, see that actor? And that actor could be a swell guy. I don't know who he is, but he ain't Jesus. He's probably not the filter in the image that we should be using to filter who Jesus is through. And so there's this word of caution that when we come to images of who Jesus is and how we depict them, we have to have discernment. And is this good? And does this lead us in further devotion? And is, this, is this how God would want to be depicted and how, what images that, that we should have in our minds? And I'll freely recognize there's a huge debate within the Christian community about this commandment, the second commandment, and how it should be interpreted. There are people I love and respect who are so much smarter than me who read this commandment and come down on this hard position that there should be no images whatsoever about who God is. And they would even say a cross is getting too close to an image of who God is. They'll even say any image is even depicted in a child's uh, Bible is, that's cartoonish, is too close to who God is. And so we don't have any images, and that's a second commandment violation, and we don't do that. And these are people, I think, that are doing it from an honest motivation, and they're good, and they're trying to follow what God's Word says. Then there's other people who maybe take a softer position and say, yes, in worship, because that's what this is talking about. In worship, we shouldn't have images of who Jesus is or who God is or anything that depicts any member of the Trinity. We shouldn't have any images in worship because this is what it's talking about. And that in any in other instance of images, we should practice discernment and see if it's wise and good. And I, I tend to fall on that second position, that we read children's Bibles to our kids that have cartoonists, depictions of Jesus. And these are used in education and learning Bible stories, but they're not used in worship. And so I I think there is some area where people can operate on that. But wherever you land on this, how to follow this commandment, whether it is a stricter interpretation or a softer interpretation, we land there for good reason. We don't just land there because that's what we're used to. We don't just land there because that's what we've been told. But we land there because that's what we believe the Bible is leading us to. And we we land there with good reason. And then we treat everyone else of our brothers and sisters with charity as they maybe land on their different interpretation of that commandment. And so we, we practice and keep this commandment first and foremost by guarding our minds about images of who God is. And then i also argue that we follow this commandment by worshiping as God tells us to worship. That when it comes to worship, God actually cares how we worship Him. And I think that's what this is getting at. That he cares how we worship him, that there should be an image representing him. That he also cares about how we worship him, as we see again throughout the Bible, in different ways. And so when we come to worship, we worship as he has told us to worship. And again, there's debate there. There's these different principles that people in Christian history have followed. The regulative principle, which means that the Bible tells us how to worship, we follow that. The normative principle, it says if the Bible does not forbid anything, everything else is okay. And, you know, I, I would say when you read the Bible, it seems like God does care how he's worshiped. And so we fall more on that regulative principle. But we read the Bible and what it makes it clear hey, worship should be a thing of prayer, it should be a thing of. of of a Bible. It should be a thing of singing. It should be a, a thing of, of service and of giving. And, and the Lord's Supper, it should be a thing of practicing baptism when someone comes to know the faith. And so we see these things put in front of us in the Bible about how God wants to be worshipped. And we, so we follow what God has done because God cares how we worship Him. And so we seek to follow as He does. And so how do we uphold and keep this commandment? We guard our minds. We worship how God wants us Worship, and then finally we read our Bible. Probably everyone just said, "Well, there he goes again." Because chances are, if a pastor can find an application that says "Read your Bible," they'll find an application that says "Read the Bible." It's always there, and there I think it's really uh, it's it's really applicable. Not like any time I don't say I say it otherwise is <laughs> applicable. It's always applicable. But here I think it's really relevant to this because we read the Bible because that's how God has revealed Himself. That's how we see who God is. And you and me and all of us have a tendency to drift. We like things that are shiny and we look around. Things entertain us or maybe they itch our ears and we're like, oh, what's this? We hear other concepts and we say, that sounds nice. And we tend to drift away from the truth. And But when we read the Bible, what does that do? It checks us. It brings us back says, this is who I am, God, through the Word. says, look at me and know me. And so when we read the Bible, we actually see who he is and we can respond to what he's done. And so we read it and so we don't just go with the flow somewhere else. Reading the Bible helps us stay firm in seeing who he is. It stops that drift and we can see how God has revealed himself for us. If God reveals, idols conceal. I think it's interesting and kind of funny. We're told not to make an image of God, but we're told again and again to behold our God. It's because we're not supposed to view God through an image of our making, but we're supposed to behold him as he has revealed himself to us. If you have an ESV Bible, which is what we read on Sunday mornings, that word behold is used 1,107 times. Often with God saying, behold, what I'm doing here, or or look here, or people just looking and seeing stuff, but it's really often talking about look to God, behold who your God is. And when they're saying that, it's saying, don't perceive him through your eyes. Don't perceive him through an image of your own making, but perceive him for how he has revealed himself. Perceive him through faith and knowing that he is our God who has moved heaven and earth to bring you back to him. And that we see God as he has shown himself to, and we gaze upon his immensity. We, we gaze upon his almost incomprehensibleness. We gaze upon this loving Father who does so much for us, and we see who God is, not through an image, but through his Word, through how he has revealed himself upon, to us, and as we behold our God, we start to be changed and transformed, bit by bit, to become more like him. Paul speaks of this in first in first Corinthians chapter. Three, says, and we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That by simply seeing the God as he revealed himself at, as he has revealed himself, when we open up the Bibles and we read, we behold our God and he starts transforming us a bit by bit from one degree of glory to another as we see him we are transformed as we see him through christ we are transformed as christ gets in us and changes us from the inside out as we see him and we seek to follow him through christ and his obedience we are transformed bit by bit and that all happens from beholding our god looking to him it's not anything we're doing But it's actually just seeing him changes us. But we see him as he is revealed. And that way he's revealed right now is through his word. And we long for the day when we see him face to face. It will be completely transformed. God reveals. Idols conceal. Go with me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank You so much for Your Word that we can see the truth of what You have given us, the truth of who You are, that we can know You through these commandments. We can know You through Your Word. And Lord, I pray that we can know You through Christ, that when we want to see You and want to know You, we look to Christ. We look to Him who has saved us, Him who came for us, Him who brings us back to You, Him who has done everything we need For salvation. So, Lord, I just pray for all of us here that we can look to Christ not as an image in our minds, but look to Him as He's revealed to us and what He has done and who He is and His love, how He gives of Himself for us. Lord, I just pray we all can walk in obedience as we behold You. I pray all these things.